We're uh, in a series, this is part 17, Word-Rooted Prayer and Worship, Keeping Your Heart Close to the Flame. This morning, the topic is purity of worship and unity in the body of Christ, and the way those two things are related, and it's more tightly related than you might think. We have some words from our Lord in Matthew chapter 5, 21 to 26. Matthew 5, 21 to 26. I hope you have a Bible of some kind with you, always in church. Matthew 5, 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. So, now Jesus is going to apply what he just said. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, this isn't you have something against your brother. He, you, he has something against you and, you, and you just, you remember it. 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out. Say that with me. Never get out. Never get out till you've paid the last penny. This passage from the teaching of Jesus, it opens up a slightly different emphasis on the whole subject of worship. We've been studying the, what, the theology of worship, why worship is important, what worship entails, going right back to Isaiah, seeing the Lord high and lifted up. Then the last couple Sundays, we've been studying the practical importance of worship. Last couple weeks especially, worship is intertwined with strength for the battles of life. Remember, Jehoshaphat goes into this battle where the odds are stacked against him, following at God's instruction the singers and the worshipers. And they don't fight the battle. God fights for them. So worship isn't just for the emotions. Well, you know, it's a Pentecostal church. I know you charismatic. You like waving your arms around and blah, blah, blah. No. You got it all wrong. This doesn't matter whether you're Anglican, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Baptist. This is Bible. The Bible isn't carved up for different denominations. You do understand that. Worship isn't just for the emotions, Jehoshaphat discovers. It's connected to strength for the battles of life. Today's text, the words of Jesus, takes us in a slightly different direction again. We learn that not only is worship valuable, it's fragile. 
It can be messed up. It can be hindered, plugged up in the believer's life. It can be neutered of spiritual dynamic and power, even while the externals are maintained and performed. That's the important point. So this this problem that Jesus is going to address in this text, this can't be fixed by better sound or lighting or the latest songs from Hillsong or Elevation. You can't fix it with this. So indirectly, this passage right here that we just read, it gives Jesus evaluation of the importance of worship in a different way. He cautions that we must let absolutely nothing stifle the free flow and expansion and expression and depth of worship in our corporate gatherings and in our personal lives. It has to be protected. That's what Jesus is saying. And he puts up, I think, five red flags in this passage. One, in awareness of our inclination toward self-centeredness, and sometimes careless in worship, Jesus summons our attention to the importance of coming to the altar of God. It's kind of a long point. It's in that 23rd verse. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there... and, and there. The there is, it's there, the altar. And there, remember that your brother has something against you. You can just dot, 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 pause there. I know our patterns of worship don't correlate exactly with those of the Jewish system that Jesus addresses in these words. But there is still something pivotal here that carries over, I think, as an abiding principle of New Testament worship, what we do. Jesus endorses the importance of a specific place where people come to present themselves to the Lord. The idea here is this, that because we live, all of us, in a fallen, distorted, and distracted world, and because we, myself included, we all only gradually unwind our souls from the grip of culture on our minds and habits, because of all that, we need to remember that it was, from the very beginning, God's idea to call people to distinct, separate, specific times and places to pursue him. I want to talk about this because I, I don't think a lot of Christians get this. I don't mean that in a scoldy way. I just mean I don't think a lot of Christians see it. And he did this, the separate day at the Sabbath in creation. He, he did this even though both he and we, we know that he's present everywhere all the time. We would all agree to that. In other words, the fact that we could know him and love him and adore him everywhere, and in everything we did, that didn't do away with the need for specific times and separate places of concentrated attention and devotion to God. 
right from creation, God established a separate day, remember? One in seven. When people would turn their minds and their hearts to him. It was not just, it was not just that people would worship God on that day. Way more than that. More importantly, they would not do anything else on that day. In other words, their worship was intentionally separated from the rest of their routines so that they could focus more deeply on God. So, this special day each week wasn't designed to teach that God could be worshipped all the time. That's certainly true. But this day was designed to teach that God was different from everything else they thought about. Different from everything else they gave their affection to. Different from everything else that consumed their weekly time. They needed to distance themselves from everything else to concentrate on the worship of God in a special way that was separated from all other concerns. That was the whole idea. Later, we know, God continues this emphasis. He establishes among his own people the places where they would worship. People came to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Then they came to the temple in the New Testament. They first came to synagogues, then to house churches, then established congregations, larger congregations. The design of the place wasn't the important feature. The the important point was, again, that people would, in this way, be forced to leave other places and other activities and give blocks of undivided attention to God. Now, we don't live in the Old Testament era. We know, we know from Jesus' words to the woman at the well, we know that the Holy Spirit comes to make the presence of God meaningful, indwelling, portable, if I can use that kind of dicey term. We all know that Jesus is just as much with us at the office, especially my office, Jesus is just as much with us at the office as he is in the church. We would all agree to that, wouldn't we? No one with any understanding would deny that truth. In him we live and move and have our being. So I think I think it's safe and it's accurate to say, at least in a sense, all of life is worship. That's what I hear from people frequently, especially if they haven't been in church for a while. All of life is worship. That idea is true as far as it goes. It's not untrue. It's just tragically incomplete. And many Christians don't think it through carefully enough. True. I worship at church and I worship at work. But the worship of those two Places is not the same. I don't worship at work the way I'm called to worship at church. And I don't worship at church the way I'm called to worship at work. There's something specifically 
special about each of those callings. At work, I offer up my daily task in service and in witness in a way that I just can't do in church. Can't do in church. Fair enough. But there's something, something fueling about the way I worship at church. For one thing, God calls us all to a corporate experience of worship in his church. That's to encourage us, to edify us, to build each other up. That strengthens me for the private calling of worship at work and community and witness, where maybe no other person is a Christian. The worship at church is the worship that enables and feeds the mind so the worship at work can be fruitful and living and powerful. I can worship at work because I faithfully worship at church. The general worship is possible because of the specific worship. The worship of God everywhere in general is the natural fruit of the disciplined, frequent corporate, consistent worship of God, separated from everything else. So we come to the altar, Jesus says. We offer our gifts. We're not trying to buy God off. We're not trying to earn his grace. No, we come because of the grace we've received, the blessings we've received in our lives. So there's this pattern. Creation, Old Covenant, New Covenant. God is everywhere. We serve him everywhere. But he still says, I need a time from you regularly where everything else is set aside and I am the exclusive focus of your worship. Second red flag, number two. The beauty of nutritional habits of worship can be emptied by things we cannot see with the physical eye. It's in 522. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable of the council. Whoever says you're a fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, seriously. Who but Jesus could get away with preaching like that? He'd never be allowed on Instagram. If Jesus walked this world today, I'm not kidding. He would be blocked from any kind of social media. Bank on it. He could never say the kind of things he said in the New Testament. He starts his lesson with a man coming to the altar, And he ends up warning about the fires of hell. That's quite a distance to cover in a 30-second conversation. And you can't help but get at least the impression that hell seemed like some kind of distinct possibility in the mind of our Lord Jesus. Who but Jesus would have the nerve to talk like that? it makes me want to read it carefully. Do I fully realize, do you realize, do we realize, do we realize how dangerous anger is 
to our souls. I don't think about it that much. I get angry all the time at little things. Do we stop to consider, even when we worship, that God sees everything that I carry in my heart into the sanctuary? Do we ever carelessly allow ourselves to think that the visible, I'm here, aren't I? My eyes are closed, my hands are raised, I put in my offering, that the visible is more important than the invisible in shaping our destinies and our worship? Or do we ever ever allow ourselves the luxury of just sort of carelessly, foolishly dreaming that the offering of our gifts and resources and attendance and singing, it somehow cancels out anger and resentment and bitterness in my heart. I'll be fine. Jesus identifies this as the fatal mistake that can destroy worship. Third red flag. God wants to use the specific habits of worship to purify my mind and my heart. 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Underline those words like I did. And and there, remember. Where? The altar comes to the altar and there. He comes to the altar and there remembers about his brother. This is really striking. There's a principle here. He didn't, as far as we know, remember this brother before. It wasn't like this was constantly on his mind, but but he came to the altar. He came to the altar, and as he offered his gift, specifically to the Lord, it says, bang, there. There. My brother has something against me. Is that a coincidence? This isn't the first time we've seen it. It can't be a coincidence. Exactly the same thing happened to the prophet Isaiah. He saw, remember, Isaiah 6, he saw the Lord high, lifted up, train filling the temple. And all of a sudden, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Where did that come from? Well, he comes before the Lord. Isaiah didn't get up out of bed in the morning and say, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. That's not the way it worked. Nope. The revelation came as he comes before the Lord. I'm going to say something that a lot of you will disagree with. I believe it with all my heart, and I'd be the worst pastor in the world if I didn't say it, just because I thought some of you might not like it. The simple habit of coming to church more often, just that, will purify your life more than you realize. Just go to church regularly. Conversely, you can read your Bible and pray until the cows come home, and if you're not coming to church regularly, your life's going to get gummed up and dirty and unclean. The simple habit of coming to church in distinctive habits of sincere worship will activate the cleansing work of God in your life. People who aren't careful 
about cultivating deep habits of corporate worship will soon lose the capacity to even identify, let alone respond to, the sins of their heart. They won't see them after a while. They'll see sins in other people, but they won't, they won't see accurately what's going on in here. Comes to the altar, and there he remembers. This doesn't fit. I know it doesn't fit with North American Christianity that's rapidly becoming a shop for what you like and don't bother with anything you don't like kind of religion. But people will keep their lives spiritually cleaner, have fewer problems in their marriage, raise their kids closer to the Lord, all without the addition of any seminars, podcasts, books, conferences, or experts if they just came to church more often, period. Without doing anything else, God would, like Jesus taught in this message on worship at the altar, God would reveal his will. He would show them what they should do next. He would keep them from sins down the road that they will fall into and not even see coming because they aren't coming to church regularly. And here's the tragedy. I love you all. But there's a lot of people sitting right here, and in your head right now, you're arguing against what I just said. And you need to confront that. You need to confront that. It's called a lying spirit in the New Testament. God has designed habits of worship to quicken my pulse with regard to pursuing holiness. He will work to keep my relationships clean. That's what our text is all about, as people worship him. The more you are in the house of the Lord, before the altar of God, worshiping, the more the Holy Spirit will cause things to bubble up to the surface of your life that would otherwise just go sour, rot, and turn malignant in your heart, and you won't see it happening. Come before the altar, and there God showed me. Oh. Red flag number four. Jesus warns about the futility of disobedient worship. So now it deepens a bit. First, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And as if saying it once wasn't enough, the same truth is cloaked in different words in other things you know about. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Or, forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors, as we also forgive our debtors. Cut it any way you like. Who receives mercy? Well, merciful people receive mercy. Who receives forgiveness? Those who forgive others. We say it every Sunday night. Forgive us our debts, our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. No more than that, Lord. Just that much. Forgive my transgressions. Ouch. 
So there it's all spelled out. Why must the worshiper go first to his estranged brother before he continues in his worship? Well, because his worship will be lifeless, powerless, routine, and useless until he goes to his brother. Are there people you don't like talking to in this church because of something that happened in the past? Are there people you don't like in this church? Please, please hear the words of Jesus in this passage. If you don't, if you don't want to talk to them, God doesn't want to talk to you. Something to think about, don't you think? How many praise songs, prayers, simply bounce off the ceiling because people ignore this principle and hope maybe God will overlook it too? Red flag number five. Good worship is best expressed when it's accompanied by a rush to obedience. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. Now he's parabolic form here, showing in pictures what can happen to our hearts. The accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard. You'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out to pay the last penny. Jesus uses two time words. I don't know if you noticed in this teaching that he gives. Both of them are important. We've already seen one in verse 24. I'm to go to my brother first, first, before I try to worship the Lord. But that's not the only one. It's not just going first. I'm also to go fast. Verse 25, come to terms quickly. First, quickly. Do you see Jesus' point? Do this first and do it fast. Why? All you have to do, all you have to do is ignore the prompting of the Spirit for a nanosecond and your heart starts to harden. That's why. In anything, all you have to do is ignore the Spirit for a moment. You may respond down the road, but it's less likely you'll respond here than if you had responded here. The chances don't increase. The chances decrease. Quickly. Quickly. The longer you wait, you lose the ability to fix things. Bondage creeps into your heart. That's what, that's what these words mean. Do you see the contrast? What's the Lord talking to you about when you come into his house? He will say things to you here that you won't hear elsewhere. Act quickly. You act quickly. At least, at least, Jesus is saying this. Do it first, do it fast, 
or there are long consequences. You'll never get out of it. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. Some things you do right away or you're not going to do them at all. Some things you make a big decision about because a small decision isn't going to carry you very far. It is never safe to worship God with a heart that in any particular area has become an unwilling heart. That kind of worship is dangerous because it turns me into a hypocrite. God takes particular displeasure, particular displeasure when I cherish sin that he's already exposed in my heart. Oh, you, you don't ever want to live there. You'll, you'll never get out. Saints, come to the place of worship. God will do things in your heart here that won't happen anywhere else. Come with a pure heart, listening to what he says. And when he speaks, act quickly. Don't come to church in chains. As your heart soars in praise, that's good. It's right. Make sure that your mind grows in understanding and make sure that your heart grows in a quick response to anything God says when you're in his house. That way, you'll keep your life clean. And here's the better thing. You'll keep your life free. And everybody said...